Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 63 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I had so much fun interviewing Kino McGregor, the fabulous, magnificent Kino McGregor. She is an awesome person. She is the co-owner of the Miami Life Center in Miami Beach, Florida with her husband, Tim. She's an Ashtanga yogi and has been since the beginning of her yoga practice. She studied with Sri K. Patabi Joyce in Mysore, India for many years. And now she is really embracing the online world, the digital world. She's been on YouTube for a long time. She has a million followers on Instagram, (laughs) but don't hate her. She's so smart, you guys. She also has a new online platform called OMSTARS that she started, which is part classes, part tutorials, part longer courses, part entertainment. And she's got a new book out called Yogi Assignment, which is which is really fascinating that we talk about. So I just find her to be impressive on pretty much every level. I, I tell the story in the podcast of how I first met her years ago, probably 10 years ago on a yoga journal shoot. She was a model for a really, really, really hard masterclass pose called Gandhu Barandasana. And her devotion really came through on that shoot. And then I had to interview her a few years later. And I was just so impressed by her ability to articulate her experiences, the value of the practice, her personal philosophy, the way she interprets yoga philosophy. And so we talk about all those things on the podcast today. I think you are really going to enjoy it. But before the interview, I want to put out a Yogaland stories question. So this question comes up in the interview between Kino and I. Her yogi assignment book is focused on ways to every day for 30 days apply the yoga practice to your life. And she gives you focused assignments for each day. And I think it's really brilliant. So it made me think of how when we apply the practice to our lives, it benefits other people. It's not just for our benefit. It ends up having a ripple effect and is beneficial to other people. So my question to you this week is, what is one way that your yoga practice has been of benefit to the people around you? So maybe you are more socially active, or maybe you are kinder to your children, or maybe you are a better communicator with your spouse, or maybe you set better boundaries with your friends. I guess just give you a whole bunch of ideas. If you want to participate, all you have to do is post a photo of yourself on Instagram and tell me the answer to that question. Use the hashtag Yogaland stories so that I can find you. And at the end of the week, I will post someone's story on my feed. Okay, you guys, thanks so much for listening. You and I spoke years ago now. I don't even know how long ago it was, but it was years ago for something for Yoga Journal. And I just remember you telling me the sweetest story of, you know, you had started practicing Ashtanga yoga in the States. And then some months later, you went over and met Patabi Joyce for the first time. And my memory is that you had kind of a dramatic experience when you met him that what I remember is that you were kind of skeptical before you met him. And then you just experienced like a pretty profound shift. I wonder if you can tell that story. Well, my very first Ashtanga yoga class was here in Miami, and I did no idea what it was. So I just walked into a class and it said Ashtanga yoga primary series. And so I jumped in there and it was absolutely amazing. Then shortly after that first class, I moved to New York City and I joined a traditional Mysore style Ashtanga yoga class. And I heard about Sri K. Patabi Joyce in in that class when the teacher said, I want to wish these two students a good trip to India. And I didn't know what it was. I just knew I wanted to go. And I made the decision to go to India, I would say, probably five or six months after I started practicing Ashtanga yoga. Yeah. I just kind of jumped and threw myself directly in. And what year was this? Was this in the 90s or? Oh, no, I think it was like 2000. Okay. I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do this. And even though it was, even though I absolutely wanted to go, there was probably nothing that I wanted to do 
more in my entire life than go to India. I remember sitting on the airplane and people had said, when you meet Guruji, like you're going to have to bow down and touch his feet. And in my mind, I was going through this whole thing about like, what does that mean? And I was in sort of like a feminist studies graduate program and just considering the whole like socio-political implications of bowing down to like a man that I'd never met before. And so that's really what was going on in my mind of how I was going to get out of this whole like bowing down to a man sort of thing. And I remember spending like a good portion of the travel, just like considering how I was going to get out of that moment and explain that like, while I appreciate the practice and it's changed my life and everything, I would really like to not do this whole like bowing down sort of thing because I don't really believe in patriarchal institutions and blah, it. blah, blah. That's I had so this whole, awesome. like feel in my mind. I had sort of like rehearsed dialogue and this sort of thing. And then it seemed like every hour that I spent on the, the airplane, it seemed like that veneer just got cracked a little bit more and cracked a little bit more. And then and there was this like five hour taxi from Bangalore, which is the city that you landed in India to Mysore. And the only address that I had was Guruji's address. So the taxi dropped me off with a giant backpack. And then I stood there and walked in and the first person I saw was Guruji. And the first, and he pointed at me and he said, cause you had to write a letter back then. And if you, you wrote this letter and sends it away, and if you didn't hear back, then you could go. So it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, but the, he, I just stood there with my backpack and he looked at me and he said, you wrote letter? And I said, yes, Guruji, I wrote the letter. And he just smiled at me and said, tomorrow, 6 a.m. you start. And then before I could say what was up or what was down, before I could rehearse anything, it was like my heart opened, my hands were on his feet. I was lying face down on the ground. And I said, thank you, Guruji. Wow. It was like the mind had one concept of what it could or couldn't do, but then the heart opened and it was just like my, my heart just left open, left up and said, yes. And this is really to a large degree, I think very much what the whole journey of yoga is about because there's so much mental conditioning and so much mental, mental fortressing and buttressing that we do about the shoulds and the should nots and the can and the cannots. And then the whole experience of the practice is just this heart opening experience that takes you beyond anything you know yourself to be. And this is essentially why the practice is so transformational. Yeah, absolutely. That was such a great story. I've heard so much. I, I started in Ashtanga yoga as well, but I never made it to my sort. I probably only practiced it for like a year and a half or two years and I didn't make it to second series. But anyway, you know, I've heard many stories about people meeting him and about having that really open-hearted experience with him. How much do you think that moment for you was you being kind of in the right place in the right time in your life and ready for that? And how much was it the power of his transmission? Like, did you find that you had those experiences a lot with him? Well, I think that up until I'd met Guruji, I'd never really met anyone like him. And I've never really met anyone like him here on here on earth, really, mm. again. And they say that the traditional definition of a guru or one of them is, is a person whose presence imparts truth to a statement spoken by anyone else would be untrue. And it was something about him. I mean, there's so many things about him that the first thing was in his presence. I, I, I never met anyone in whose presence I felt peace. I felt calm. I felt happiness. I felt that those layers of personality, those layers of mental fortresses, those, you know, those, those layers of all of our conditioning, they just slipped a little bit away. And I just, I'd never really felt in the presence of someone that my heart could trust without bounds. Mm. And that for me is really the essence of it. And I, and to be honest with you, I practiced and even met a lot of people that, that had positioned themselves as sort of like spiritual gurus, whether in yoga or in other spiritual walks. And there was always an element of, I would say the average humanity and Guruji had his average humanity, but there was something special about him. And, and, and I, I would meet other people and there would be this element of some, some element that I like, um, like some, other people, something in my mind would go off and say, Oh, I don't really know if I should trust him about that. Mm, I don't know if I should trust him about that. Mm, that doesn't really feel right. But with Guruji just, and he didn't really say very much, just him standing there and him being there, it, there was an immediate sense of faith and impartation of, of knowledge, of wisdom, of, of compassion and of a joyful heart. And I think for me that I didn't know many things in my life then, like I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I was going to turn the corner on the life I was living before. I didn't know where I was going. But after I met Guruji, I knew one thing. And that was that I was going to keep practicing and that I had to go back to India. Mm, that's so special. 
That's really special that you had that experience. I think that is exceedingly rare, especially these days. Mm. And I like that you said that you, I can't remember how you just put it, but just that you saw his humanity because, you know, it's something I kind of talk about a lot in the podcast is like that even the best, 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 best teachers are still human. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it's not necessarily about, it's not at all about giving up all your power, or giving into blind faith or anything like that. But it sounds like for you, you recognize that he was like the right teacher for you. He resonated with you. And so even if you saw moments of his fallibility and just being human, the teaching was still true for you. Does that sound like it resonates? Yeah. Well, so many students would come to India with the sort of with this glassy eyed expectation that they would meet a guru in Mahasamadhi, you know, in like this highest state of spiritual enlightenment. And some people would come to India and Guruji used to sit every day. And when he was teaching, he used to be available from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. in what was called conference. So you could just sit there and you could ask him questions or if he also wasn't sentimental, so he wasn't going to stare longingly into your eyes and try to find the present moment. He would just sort of casually look around and say, students, any doubt, doubt? Mm. And then if no one said anything, he would go, oh, no doubt today. And then he'd grab his newspaper and he'd start reading, you know, (laughs) it's just very human. And (laughs) and then there would be one, I remember this one time there was a student that raised her her hand and said, what is it like to live in the state of ultimate samadhi? And Guruji laughed and he went, samadhi, ha ha ha. Oh, I don't know samadhi. I am a simple man. Just I do one thing. I teach you ashtanga yoga. A, come inhale. You raise your hands. Dwe, exhale, go down. And she like, you could see the, her whole, like her whole world is cracked. And Guruji never said, you know, I'm an enlightened master. He just said, I'm teaching you Ashtanga yoga. Like I teach you this yoga method. I teach you what my teacher taught me. And it's honestly, when I say that I saw his humanity, I feel like there's so many aspects of him just in the human that I find inspirational to this day. He was in his nineties still teaching every day. He taught for between five and seven, sometimes up to 10 hours a day, taught yoga, Ashtanga yoga, where he was lifting people's bodies and helping them into backbends in his eighties and in his nineties. And, you know, uh, and getting up basically in the middle of the night to teach people. He would be there super timely at 4am, ready to teach, inspired to teach as probably more inspired for the beginner than for the advanced student and always jovial, always interested in the new student, very interested and very caring about whether or not you were doing the method properly and and the amount of enthusiasm and care and the, and the openness of his heart for the practice is just, and his energy for the practice, I mean, it's just so inspirational. And the way that he was able to, I guess two things, I guess this constant compassion and open heart towards the students. And then the second thing is if we look at Guruji's life, for the majority of his life, he taught a few disinterested students. And it really wasn't until he was in his 70s, 80s, even 90s, right before he passed away, he started to get these gigantic crowds of students. And so this is when he's in Finland or in New York City, there's beautiful pictures of him in the Puck building with like hundreds of students. And I think like he taught one of, it's like one of the largest classes was ever in Finland when there were like 800 students or something insane like this. And I think what we have to remember is that this took him years. So he showed up and he he always said, I need one student. You need one student to be a teacher. And he showed up and taught one student, two students, three students for years until this dream really came to fruition of really just taking Ashtanga yoga to the world. And that's really inspirational for me because, you know, I wake up in the morning sometimes and I feel like, man, I'm tired. I want to quit. Like it's not happening fast enough. You know, where are all the students? Like, why, am, why, why isn't this idea of mine getting any traction? And then I think of Guruji and I think, wait a minute, Kino, it's at least made an impact on one person's life. Wait a minute, Kino, like how long have you really been working at this? Has it been 10 years? Has it been 20 years? Look at Guruji. He was 70s, 80s, 90s when this happened. All right, you've got at least, you know, another <laughs> 40, 50 years to work on your dreams. So, okay. That's so inspiring. But, yeah, that's definitely really inspiring to think that like, I mean, that's actually been a big theme for me lately too, is like, you're not, done when you get older it's actually can just be the beginning because you mm-hmm. you've mined a lot of wisdom you've had oh, a yeah. lot of failures you've had a lot of trial and error you've had a lot of time to look around and like get to know yourself better and understand other people better and it just serve you know if you if you let it it can really serve you yeah I feel in, in yoga teaching I had a conversation with Tim Miller who was who's the first ever certified Ashtanga yoga teacher under Sri Kipatapi Joy so under Guruji and I remember talking to him because he's 
when I first met him, he sort of introduced himself as a card-carrying member of the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. And I, I laughed at him. And he said, you know, your asana practice has a trajectory of going up for a little period. And then at some moment, you start handing back the asanas. And then you'll have a decline in your asana practices. But your teaching, you will only get to be a better teacher as you're older. The spiritual journey only gets better as you get older. And I'm a much better teacher now than I was when I was younger. Oh, and nice. so that that's something I think to kind of embrace. Look at Guruji. Like he was, you know, he was he held the presence of the lineage so brightly as he was aging. And I, I think there's an interesting notion to kind of change the dialogue around, you know, ageism and aging and, and our fascination with eternal youth and the idea that youth in and of itself is a commodity and the commodization of or sort of like that that youthful, eternally youthful body and instead to really embrace wisdom. Right. And to embrace sort of depth and wisdom and depth really in the yoga world. World, rather than say, you know, asana flashiness, you know, mm-hmm. and really to to take out the notion of competitiveness and asana and, and really to bring in the notion of, of heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you can speak to, it's just making me think of just, you know, what a devoted student you have been to your lineage. First of all, that you are still devoted to a specific mm-hmm. lineage that, you know, comes directly from India and that, you know, you traveled back to India yearly for such a long time and just you know, it's it's less and less common these days to have that. And that's, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But it's also, I, I feel like it's also less common for people to, I don't know, how do I put it without being crit- sounding critical? It's like people want all the results right now. Mm-hmm. There's like yoga is becoming, it feels a little bit like it's becoming like the quick fix. Like how do I get into handstand the fastest way possible? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder how do you bring your sense of like devotion and being a student? How do you encourage that in your own students? Or do you even think about that? I think about it all the time, actually. I mean, I feel like I have this really interesting journey in yoga is that before I found Ashtanga yoga, I went to my first class when I was 19 and it was just an average class in a gym. And I liked it. And I honestly thought like, Hey, this is, this is cool. Let me go get a bunch of books on yoga. like the world before YouTube, you know? So let me get some actual books. So I took a yoga class and thought, Hey, I could do this at home on my own, got a bunch of books and started doing it on my own at home. And I sort of tried to, you know, self teach yoga and do it myself at home. And I really understand kind of that it was in my life. And I, and I went back and took a few classes here and there and I had all these books and I would read about the asanas and kind of try to do them. And they were all books in the Shivananda tradition, which I have immense respect for. But it was when I found Ashtanga Yoga and I committed myself to being a student that I really understood the commitment, the devotion, the discipline, the determination of what is the spiritual essence of the practice. And I think about it all the time now because I feel like I meet people that they call the yoga poses shapes and they're like, I want to make that shape. And I, what I usually like to ask people is, well, why? Why do you want to make that? So if you want to do a handstand, you want to do it quickly. Great. But why? And what's that going to what's that going to teach you? I mean, I would personally rather have someone be desperate to do a handstand and fail and fall every day, but pick up humility, pick up kindness, pick up wisdom each time they fall, then get it totally right in their, you know, in 10 steps to handstand and then just be out there balancing and just having a great time. Because I think the essence of the yoga practice is not the poses or the shapes you make, but the wisdom that you pick up along the journey. And I don't know, for me, I can't say for other people, I can really only speak for myself as a I don't know that that would have been possible for me without the guidance of such a strong teacher. And one of the things that I really like to say to people is, is, is like, I only saw my teacher for somewhere between a month and six months, depending on how long I could stay in India, but once a year. And the rest of the time, the practice was on me. So it was me. It was me getting, I was practiced alone, sometimes with friends, but mostly alone. It's such a solitary journey. And I felt like, oh, I guess there's this concept which is popularly understood kind of in India, is that the spiritual path is comprised of four components. One fourth of that is the student's responsibilities. The student must burn for the practice. Like you have to yearn, not just for the poses and the shapes, but you have to sincerely want to know what yoga is and who am I. You have to ask those deeper questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Why am I practicing? What is life? What am I a spirit? Is there a God? And how do I know God? You have to ask the deep spiritual questions. So the student's sincerity is one fourth the journey. Then the teacher, the teacher, the teacher's presence is one fourth the journey. So you need, so a teacher is sort of 
it's expected, it's presumed, it's a presumption in the traditional spiritual teachings in India that you will have a teacher and that teacher's responsibility is a fourth of the journey. The sangha, the spiritual community around you is a fourth of the contribution. So basically the, the community that you're around, your yoga friends, the world that you're in, the, sort of the company that you keep. And this last component is really important. One fourth, the passage of time. And this is something that cannot be rushed. We can't buy it. We can't package it. We just have to let ourselves steep. And, and this is this concept that the practice is like, a, is like a fermentation. And it's in order to make the best balsamic vinegar, right? Just assuming it's balsamic vinegar. Um, <laughs> you not mine, to, right? No, right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Really good. I mean, the balsamic vinegars that are aged are like really expensive. So those are the most valuable and the most precious and like the best. And they've been steeped in their own Jesus. You have to let yourself steep. And you can't rush that. And so this is something that I just feel like, okay, so what we have to do, I think, as teachers, and there's a Sanskrit term that's in one of the mantras that Gurji used to say, Namo Brahma Devya Brahma Vidya Sampradaya Karatrabhyo, which is Namaste to Brahman, Namaste to the keepers of the way of the knowledge of Brahman, which is essentially... I thank all of the teachers before me as the torchbearers on the spiritual path of yoga, on the knowledge of the truth, the highest truth being God, the divine. And thank you for that because you've lit the way for me. And now I'll carry the torch for those who are behind me. And it's this idea that the practice is, I mean, if we continue with the balsamic vinegar analogy, right? Like the, the true spiritual practice is like the best balsamic vinegar you've ever tasted. And if you've just been using like, you know, the pre-mixed balsamic salad dressings from, you know, fast food chains or whatnot, and, you, and you've been like, all right, this is cool. But the moment that you taste that like really, really good, authentic balsamic vinegar, there's something in your taste buds that wakes up and you're like, wow, what is that? That's amazing. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that I trust the practice itself, its integrity, its authenticity, its power, its ability to just wake up sleeping parts of your body, to wake up unlived parts of your life, to just give that light, that spark, ignite that spark in the hearts and minds and the souls of students whenever they come into contact with it. Absolutely. That's so beautifully said. I think it's so interesting when I meet yoga teachers who also have like strong Western educational backgrounds. I think, do you have a degree in psychology? I have a master's degree from New York University, and it was it's an interdisciplinary social science degree. But I did minor; I had three minors in undergraduate, and one of those was psychology. Yeah, I, that stayed with me from our last conversation because I just remember mm -hmm. speaking to you and feeling like, "Wow, this woman totally gets it." One of the things that I find so interesting about you is that you know you are like such a Western woman, you know, like you, mm -hmm. you mentioned yeah. feminism, like you are an entrepreneur, you have a yoga studio, you have a really thriving YouTube channel. And yet, you know, you have this reverence for tradition. I, I've been kind of surprised because the first time I was ever exposed to you was when I was working at Yoga Journal and I didn't work with you directly in the beginning, but Todd Jones worked with you on a bunch of masterclass mm -hmm. series. And mm -hmm. I actually happened to be on one of those shoots. I think it was like the first shoot I ever mm. went on. And I was like, I was like standing in the background because I was going to be the editor on the next shoot after you were done and you were doing Gandhu Barandasana. Yeah, I remember that. I told Jason, I told my husband Jason last night, like I have never in my life been that close to a person doing something like that. I was like five feet away from you. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, this is so intense, you know? And like just seeing your devotion, that's just how I've always thought of you. And I feel like in the past few years, like you've taken a lot of flack online, you know, mm -hmm. just for being a business person and like for your clothing and all of these things. Do you ever, I'm sure you think about this, but I wonder for me, I wonder the thing that comes to mind is like how much of this is a result of her being a woman versus like, mm. you know, would a man get this kind of flack? Mm. And I just wonder how you cope with that. Well, I think that there, there are two things that I noticed that are definitely related to my femininity. Um, and I, I think the first is that whenever I go online, the amount of sexually oriented comments that are posted by strangers is overwhelming. And I find that men who go online don't really get that. Like they may get like, you're boring, like, uh, like, you know, or you're ugly, you know, or something like that. Like, if it's, if it's something negative or you're stupid or this is sign off, but like the amount of sexually explicit, moderately aggressive 
comments from absolute strangers is quite overwhelming. I try to ignore them, but once in a while I have to block someone. I just feel like it's better just to ignore rather than like engage and block. Sure. And yeah. It's like, you can spend like an entire, like forever, basically like finding that comment and being like, oh, that's a lewd, moderately aggressive, sexual, sexually oriented comment directed at various body parts of mine. Let's block that. But occasionally they're, they're a little bit scared, like a little, sometimes it crosses a line and then I, I block them. So I would say that that that's a huge thing that I think is definitely related to being a woman. Um, no matter, no matter where I am, if I sign online, if I do a live broadcast, if I post a video and there's comment section, there will be sexual comments, whether it's sexualized emojis, which I had to get educated on just because I, I, oh, you know, I don't I'm even doing... know about those. I don't think I want to yeah, know about that. <laughs> no. Yeah. I didn't really know, but like, here's an example. Like I would post something I would be doing a live broadcast and then I would see like eggplant, 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 splash. And I was like, that is so weird. And it, I just, it didn't make the connection in my mind, but like what in male genitalia reminds you of an eggplant? Did you, <laughs> did you find it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So eggplant, 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 splash. Oh, and I goodness. was literally, yeah. Like I was literally like, wow. Okay. I didn't need to know that, you know, like if that, like, I like, no, you need to do that on your own. That's great. But do, do you need to tell me right now in emojis? And so that was, that's kind of something that I just don't think happens on male broadcasters yeah. as much. Um, and I just wonder what in our society normalizes the sexualization of any female's body and any female's voice at all times. And how much is the, the quote unquote fault of that usually placed on the woman? Mm. You know, so people, it's like, well, if you don't want that, put some clothes on. Well, if you don't want that, then do X, Y, and Z. But I can tell you, it happens to me whether I'm wearing like leggings and long sleeve t-shirts or whether I'm wearing shorts and a bra top. And it's, you know, it's this whole idea of, of okay, so who is really the victim here? So is it the victim of a sexual assault because she happens to be wearing a sexy dress? Oh, no. What is the normalization of, of behavior? And why is it okay to hide behind anonymity and, and basically assault women who are live online simply because you're not looking them directly in the eyes? Would you say that to a woman that you walk down on the street? Would you touch your private parts in front of her if you were walking down the street? And, and, and like what, what lines are crossed online and how does online behavior normalize sexual, sexual aggression in a way that is, is just absolutely not okay when you're in person? So this is something I think as a woman in the online space, it's definitely an issue and definitely something that I think about on a daily basis. Yeah. It's so disturbing. And clearly, Mm -hmm. you know, as we move more and more into the digital world, like it's a dialogue that needs to be happening. And somehow we need to be educating young people better about this. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that I always think about this, you know, when I was an editor, if I would send copy back to a writer, this is such a benign example, but it's just shows Mm -hmm. like, if I sent copy back to a writer and asked for changes, the difference between the way that they would respond via email versus if I called them to talk to them about it was Mm. black and white. Like, so in other words, the more steps away you get from being in person, like, right, like if the phone call is one step away, and then email is two steps away, and then commenting on a forum online is three steps away, and then commenting anonymously is four steps away. The further you get away from being face-to-face and directly connected with someone, the more aggression people feel comfortable putting out into the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, it's just like, clearly people need to be educated about this. And then, you know, it's funny when I was preparing for this interview, I I was just like looking up old interviews with you and I saw something come up about your clothing and I saw Mm -hmm. some guy say something to the effect of men are just sexual beings. And like, if you're going to present yourself with little clothing on, this is just how men are going to respond. And it's like, actually, no, women do not always have to be looked at as objects. Mm-hmm. And even if you have a sexual response to looking at something, it, it doesn't give you any right to communicate aggressively about that or to think that you own that person in mm-hmm. such a way that you can communicate the way that you're communicating. It's just like, there's so mm-hmm. much nuance to it, but absolutely. And I just want to say like, I never thought about you wearing shorts until like, <laughs> I never thought about it. Like to me, I knew you were an Ashtanga yogi. 
if you go into a Mysore room, people are wearing very little clothing. It's really hot. It's just sort of like the culture of the practice. I never think about it. And I, I, I grew up a ballet dancer too. And so mm. the body's really looked at differently in that discipline. And mm-hmm. women are women are much more powerful in that discipline. Like, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's more women than men. And there's just like a lot of naked backstage changing your clothes from the time you're very young. And it's just not a thing. It's just not a right. thing. Like the body is looked at as kind of like a machine and a beautiful instrument. It's looked at as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I've just always found it really confounding. And so anyway, I'm sorry to make you talk about it again, because I know no, you've got to I'm talk about it a lot. No, it's okay. I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's an issue that many people and especially many women face. Um, In one of the articles, I can't remember if I wrote or someone wrote it about me, they sort of took Guruji's picture and Guruji's literally in a loincloth. I mean, like this is like the, like, it's not even like an actual short. It's like a loincloth, like a cloth wrapped around him, like tied. And as you move their pecs, it gets like looser and looser. And it's like, okay, so why isn't anyone commenting like, oh, he shouldn't be wearing that, you know? Yeah. The interesting thing I think is, is, is a matter of, of respectful dialogue and respect and respectful speech. And I guess it all comes down to our need to really respect and love ourselves because how we treat our own bodies, how we treat ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, what our own inner dialogue is. That's sort of like when we dig down inside and we remove all the layers and what is anonymity, right? But the freedom to say all the things that are kept inside that you don't allow yourself to say. So what is the solution to that is not to create more barriers and say, we're not allowed to go here. The solution is make deep peace with yourself, so much peace with yourself. So all those seeds of aggression that are inside of you, all those seeds of objectification and all those seeds of hurt and subjugation that are inside, inside of you get resolved and brought up to the surface where you can deal with them on your own terms within yourself. I don't really see, you know, happy, resolved beings making lewd, aggressive, sexually violent comments. I totally respect men who leave me comments that say like, hey, you know, no disrespect, but I think you're really beautiful or hey, hey girl, no disrespect, but like, I love your legs or even other things that that are just stated in like as a genuine compliment. You know, I kind of feel like that comes from a place of of resolution and inner respect. And so I feel like the larger question for us kind of as a society is where are we going and what are our values? And I would say the objectification of the female form is really just sort of one symptom of a larger kind of systemic cultural crisis that I feel is kind of happening across the United States of America, which is a deep quest for meaning, a deep quest for presence. And I feel people are crying out for it. And it just maybe hasn't been recognized to a degree where, where it's, it's, it's been able to be kind of validated and processed and brought forth in a way that, that say everybody can really kind of, kind of jump on and really make that deep, that deep place of resolution and find meaning and find value and find presence um, in all of the small moments of their lives. That's a very good point. And it's a very compassionate way to look at things, which I think is useful. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought of it that way. The last thing I want to say about just like to go back just a little bit is that the thing that's so interesting to me is that the objectification of the female form is not actually about sex. It's about power and Mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so that, that to me is where I just feel like the education needs to be there. Like you said, like that sense of meaning and purpose beyond like our basest kind of responses to being Mm -hmm. live creatures Mm -hmm. needs to be there somehow. But I think that's just such a good point that you're not, the people who are making comments like that are not, they're not the happiest people and not the most resolved people. So yeah. But if yeah. we take that thing where you said that it's a power relationship, then we have this question of how much of our culture treats human beings as disposable. And this is just so heartbreaking. Like in our current society, you know, how many people see, you know, a dog and their heart opens and then see a person struggling and look the other way? How many of us treat all of the people that we come into contact every day, whether it's, you know, a, a waiter or, you know, someone on the phone with your bank when you have a problem. How much humanity do we bring into every interaction? How much of an open heart and a vulnerability do we share with every human being that we come into contact with? Or how much do we treat these people, these human beings that are, that are in our lives in small and large forms as disposable. And I think this is the essence of where yoga can really be transformational because it teaches people how to be present. 
it's this element of presence. It's this element of, hey, wait a minute, you are a human being and I am a human being and we are here now and there's a possibility of connection and intimacy and vulnerability. It doesn't matter if I just buying something at the supermarket and you're the checkout clerk. And it doesn't matter if you're my best friend from high school, we are, we are equal human beings. And we have the possibility right now to connect on equal terms and you have value and I have value and, 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 and we can find places to meet and we can find places to connect, even if just for a moment, even if just like a, a, a glance in the eyes and, and an acknowledgement of our basic shared humanity. And how can that be sort of reintegrated, I think, into our, into our culture, the idea that, that every human being has value, you know, not just the pretty perfect wealthy people, but every human being has value. And how can we act in a way moment to moment that acknowledges that and, and makes space for that really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a very little production. this is such a good segue to talk about your book because I feel Mm -hmm. like your book, your new book is called Yogi Assignment and it's a 30 day program and it's, it's helping people bring yoga to not just do asana, but to bring the principles into their lives. So how did you come upon this focus for the book and how did you come up with like the different elements, the, the different assignments for each day? Well, I remember that when I first started sharing kind of little videos actually on Snapchat before Instagram stories started happening, I remember watching people's stories and people just kind of talk about their days. And I I don't know, I, I, I would open it and just think like, oh, I don't really know what to say here. <laughs> and then I guess the teacher in me came out and I remember saying, well, I don't really know what to say to you guys, but I'm a teacher. Teachers give assignments. So here's your yogi assignment of the day. And I just kind of came up with one on the spot. And then I started doing them every day and I started posting them on Instagram and the people started writing, you should make these into a book. And then I, I talked to my publisher about it and they were just like, yeah, this is great. So I kind of looked through all of the yogi assignments that I'd given out for about a year and I collected the ones that I really thought really um, kind of essentialized the the spiritual journey of yoga. And then I uh, sort of structured them into 30 days that take you into the yogic journey, starting with basic yogic principles like ahimsa, nonviolence, satya, truthfulness and authenticity, and sort of moving up to more, you know, more in-depth topics like surrender and devotion to God and meditating on the infinite and and more esoteric kind of deeply spiritual concepts. And I really mean for this to be yoga wisdom for everyday life. So whether or not you're a devoted and disciplined practitioner or someone who is just inspired by the ethos of the yoga lifestyle, this is a great book to leave you inspired to hopefully be a better person. And if you're already practicing and you're in depth in, in, in deep into the practice, this is this, I think really kind of bears your heart and soul about what the yoga practice has in terms of its potential to change your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I I love the concept. So I'm going to put you on the spot for a moment and ask you, like, what's a key principle for you from from yoga philosophy that you bump up against the most in your life? Like that's most challenging for you. Hmm. I can share one for for me from my life right now, which like anyone who listens to the podcast hears it all the time. But for me, it's actually staying steady in the midst of my daughter's unpredictability, you know, like mm-hmm. I thank God that I have years of practice under my belt before I had her um, because she's just like a really emotional, intense kid mm-hmm. and kids are just, tra- they just change so rapidly. And so often like something changes, like one system changes, like let's say they physically grow really quickly and like mm-hmm. they, something else has not caught up. It's like, they're just they are such dynamic little beings that they, they go through a lot. And they also tend to reflect most of their difficulty on the parents and most of it on the mom. It's just, Mm. it's just their safest place, you know? So 
like I see it as my job to stay to model steadiness for her as much as I can. And I sometimes I really struggle with that. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like one that I'm thinking about a lot lately and working on a lot lately. And it's like trying to work more stillness, more seated meditation into my day than I have in the past few years. When she was first born, like when she was first, first born, I gave up my meditation practice. It's like I was nursing mm-hmm. her every hour. I was up like every hour of the day. You know, it just was not reasonable for mm-hmm. me. If I had any time, I would just fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So I was mo- I would do more asana. I would move more. But now that I have like a more regular sleep schedule and all that stuff, I want to try to like incorporate more stillness into my day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I don't have kids. I can only imagine, you know, I can only imagine that and empathize. Who knows, maybe one day, but, 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 you know, we've got two cats and that's, that's, <laughs> that's the extent of, I really hear what you're saying. And I, I think you're extremely brave for going through that and, and really taking on the mantle of modeling steadiness and stillness. I mean, that's just what a, what a lucky daughter she is to have that in you. That's awesome. Oh yeah. I hope so. I hope she's a lucky daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I said, like we're just all in it together doing our best you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the hardest sort of the thing that I bump up against against the most is really operating in faith and understanding kind of when to turn things over. And so what I mean by that is there are things that, you know, there are things that are difficult and things that are, I have, I have, I mean, I'm, you know, Florida is still part of the East coast and I definitely feel like I have a very fast working mind and I have an idea and then I want to get it done and I start working and I'm a really hard worker and I just start like working and going and I've got 25 ideas going on and like so many different projects happening. And I just, I just like want to keep going. And there's a point when grace opens you up more, you know, to more success than struggle and pushing will. And so I think I always struggle with that edge of how much, how much to push and how much to let go, how much to accept and how much to fight. Mm. And, and sort of to really watch that, to watch that edge to, to how much do I operate in faith? And then how much am I trying to control the outcome? Mm. And well, am I manipulating the situation or, or am I being truthful? And what is the faithful, what is the faithful act in this moment? And the faithful act is not always the most comfortable act. And just to constantly work that edge, whether it's about my dad is quite sick and he's been, he's been not well for about two and a half years. Mm. And it's a daily process of making peace with it. And how much of it can I and my mom's gone through this with him, I would say more, is, and especially she has, you know, how much of it can she, how much can she fight for him to get better mm. and how much can she just turn over and really how much can we both just turn over and be at peace and, and, and what's okay mm. in that regard. And it's, it, it, it's very scary, you know? Absolutely. What is, what is a faithful act in business? You know, how much do you worry about like numbers and finances and how much do you act in faith, even if it's risky and say, I believe in this and I'm filled with faith about this. So I'll, I'll, I'll move forward. I feel like in business, I'm a little bit more like, well, if you fail, you just, you know, you pick it back up and start again. But when it's, when it's about someone that you love, it's, it's letting go is scarier. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's it, that, I mean, you sort of identifying the situation with your dad, which I'm sorry to hear about, by the way, it's, it's like the ultimate application of our practice, you know, it's mm-hmm. like ultimately, you know, we will all not be here at some point. So we all have, we, like, we have to, that's part of what we're learning is like the letting go, but it is the hardest, the hardest thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also it will probably be extremely helpful for people to hear that even as at your, you know, level of success as a yoga teacher and just for how, how long you've been teaching and all those things that you have moments of doubt too, and that you have moments of questioning too, and that you have, you want to push yourself harder. And you know, that, Mm -hmm. that in other words, that perhaps we don't ever feel like we just completely arrive. Not that we can't be content with where we are, but Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're always kind of just, I don't know if striving is the right word, like mm-hmm. we're, we're all kind of trying to keep growing mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, and, and things change. So I think that's helpful for people to hear that even at your level of teaching. Oh, absolutely. My husband and I were just talking about this and we were saying that perhaps, perhaps the only constant in our lives is change itself, you know, just this constant evolution of ideas and focus and attention. And anybody that works with me uh, needs to get very used to that I have like 
thousands of ideas every day and I manage them and I process them and I, I sort of shoot them off and say like, Hey, here's this idea. Um, can you get it done? I'm, I'm not a great executor, but I do let, you know, I, I'm a good, I follow up with people very well, but uh-huh. I have a lot, I have a lot of ideas. I don't know where they come from. I just, I, if, if I have like a morning off and I try to do nothing, just the open space of doing nothing, just kind of, I feel like then that's almost like more problem. Because like in the space of doing nothing, then I've gotten like 10 new ideas. I'm like, oh, it'd be better if I just worked and gotten through the stuff I'm already working on. But now I have 15 other things that I would need to get done. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. I think that's a, I think that's a good problem to have. That's, I'm sure yeah. that contributes to your success. Oh, I'm so glad that I have a team though. I mean, our, but my team at Omstar is just really awesome. We just had a meeting with them today and I just love them. I mean, they're all just so good and I'm so grateful for them. And if we didn't have them really behind behind everything that we're doing over at OMSARS, it just wouldn't be possible. I mean, we just have a great production team. We've got a great web team. We've got a great sort of social media team and just everybody that needs to sort of be on board to really carry through and see through all the moving parts and the behind the scenes is they're just amazing. And I yeah. think that's, that's really, really important to understand is that I'm going to have an idea I'm not alone out there in a vacuum. It's really a team effort and it's really about a shared ethos of, hey, we all believe in this and we're all working for it and we're all coming together to really make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's so nice. And also related to that is your, is your husband, you know, I feel like you're in the front of the house at the restaurant and I'm sure he's like more behind the scenes, but he's contributing so much as well. And, you know, I work with my husband in similar capacity. So how do you guys work that out? Like work that those rules out for us, it's just kind of very organic and natural. And like you said, always changing, but you know, how do you balance working together, marriage, Mm -hmm. creating the different roles in business and all that stuff? Well, gosh, we opened our yoga center together like about 11 years ago. And it was a big, it was a big learning curve for us as a couple as well as learning curve for us as individuals. And I think that one of the things that I think is really, really useful is that we found out that it was better to have kind of one of us that was like in charge rather than that we're, we're sort of, you know, Mm co-running. And so I did a period where I was running the yoga center for a little bit. And then now, now Tim is the director of Miami Life Center. So he runs everything at the yoga center. He trains our teachers. He's super involved in operations and, he, he, he's really the director of the yoga center and that's awesome. He's so good at it. He's a really good kind of team leader. And he really, he, 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 my husband is a structural thinker. So he's interested in having all of the teachers kind of teach, you know, a shared methodology and has developed a kind of an apprenticeship program to take all of our teachers through an extensive training over two years to kind of make sure that all of the teachers are up to par. And it's a lot of time investment and a, lot, a big emotional investment in their development. And it's really, really awesome. And I think for us, it's really about recognizing, okay, well, this is Tim's main project. And then I come in and how can I support him in that? And then the same thing, like for me with the, with the online video channel with OMSARS, Tim is like, well, that's your project. And how can I be a support to you in that project? So that's sort of how we look at kind of working together. And then in the instances that we do teach together, we try to do anything that we think is fun together. So if you think it's fun to say like next year, we're going to be going to Iceland together and we'll be going to Peru together. And this is because we think it's fun to go to those places because in Peru, we'll also see Cusco and in, in Iceland, we're going to go see the Northern Lights, hopefully, you know, God willing. So things like that, we, we try to save things that we do jointly more for fun. That's really smart. Jason and I haven't thought of it that way yet. I like that approach. Yeah. I mean, I've always just tended to kind of like Sophia and I, or, or just me, you know, we, I go along on the trips that I want to go on, but we haven't ever planned it that way from the, from the start. That's really smart. And Tim and I, we've been together, I think like 15 years now. And in the beginning, I think like everything is just fun. Like we were just like, when I met Tim, I was kind of living as an expat. Like I'd spent like something like over 18 months out of the United States. And I mean, it was like six months in India and six months in Europe and then six months in India and then, you know, travel and be absolutely rootless. Did you guys meet in Mysore? Did you, we met it, we met in India in, and actually we were on the same airplane. I was, we were going to Trivandrum, which is Kovalam beach, not Mysore. Um, it's It's in the South of India. We were on the same plane. We both connected through Kuwait <laughs> right before, I think it was like right around when I 
Gulf Wars. And we were literally the only two Westerners on the plane. And I kept looking back at him thinking, is he doing that yoga thing? He was talking to the person next to him. Every time I looked back and I just assumed he was some businessman like on a trip and that was his business partner. And then as I walked into baggage claim, he was standing there alone and I looked up at him and I said, Hey, are you doing that yoga thing? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you want to share a taxi? <laughs> and wow. he said, sure. And I said, well, you have to wait for my bags. And he was like, oh, okay, no problem. And he lifted my bags off of the baggage carousel, which was a good move. That definitely won some points in my <laughs> regards. And here we are 15 years later, and he's still lifting my bags off the Aww. baggage carousel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so amazing. I love hearing stories of how people meet because it, it tends to be like so serendipitous. That's a good story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Kino. It was so great to talk to you. I just want to make sure I give people the information about when they can order your book. Is it available for pre-order hmm. yet? Yes. The book is available for pre-orders. If you go to amazon.com or I think really any, any book retailer should have that, but Amazon's really easy. It's available for pre-order. You can just put in Yogi assignment or you can look under my, my Amazon author page and it's there and you can pre-order it and you'll get it right away, which would be really awesome. You can bring it to me in any class that I am teaching and I would love to sign it at any time. It always makes me really happy when I see someone that has one of my books. It's just, I feel really humbled and honored that, you know, that you would take the time to read my words and and read my writing. And I just get so happy whenever I see someone with one of my books. Yeah, absolutely. And it's beautifully written. It's a really beautiful Mm, book. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, my dear. Thanks as always for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 63. And I will link to Kino's new book, to her YouTube and Instagram, and to her own stars channel. Check it out. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive iTunes review. It's really helpful. It helps others find the podcast. I will look for your yoga land stories and until next week, enjoy your practice.